Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. John Andrew Bryan is a writer and part-time street pastor in Pittsburgh. His new book is A Quiet Mind to Suffer With, Mental Illness, Trauma, and the death of Christ, our topic today. Welcome, Pastor Brian. Hey, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you a question. What is a street pastor? A street pastor is uh, an open-air chaplain, uh, at least in my case, um, to administer what I call the sacrament of presence uh, in a hard, hard place. So a lot of uh, spending time with people in, in addiction, uh, tra- highly traumatized population of people, uh, that just aren't doing well, and uh, uh, being a bridge to resources, but mostly just providing presence and letting that be um, what I offer. So that's that's been the job for about four four years now, going on five. And you're still at it, and you're going to stay at it. I still at it. I'm still going to stay at it. There's um, there's a joy. Uh, there's a gladness there. It's a hidden one because it's so the work can be so devastating. But there, that I, I Christ told me to meet him out there, so I do, and, and his spirit leads me, so that's what I do. Yeah. All right. The book. The book is a work of writing, I should tell our, our readers. There's a lot of creativity that goes into the presentation. And you begin, actually, with a, a glossary of terms uh, that are, are sort of semi-technical terms. Uh, one of the most important of those terms is intrusive thoughts. Tell us what are intrusive thoughts and what really gets to the the issue is how do people try to manage them? Yeah, um, so I'll I'll speak from experience in ways that I think don't go against, um, you know, what a therapist would say or, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not super technical, but intrusive thoughts are thoughts that are not voluntary and are distressing in and as much as they go against the person who's experiencing them's um, values or their character. So I call them uh, living nightmares. Um, the emphasis is on the non-voluntary nature of them. But for people with OCD, um, you cannot make them go away. And and trying to make them go away it drives you deeper into the some of the worst symptoms of, of the OCD, drives you into compulsions, checking, fixing. Um, to drive them out, and the point is, is that that in itself is it was what they call crazy making that will drive you further into um, the disorder. And as a Christian, you don't want bad thoughts; you want good thoughts. Learning how to relate to them as a Christian um, really tough, tough work for me over the years. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers that. <laughs> you, you know, the 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 involuntary aspect. Uh, why can't we just, why can't someone who suffers these, I suffer, I mean, we all a little bit 
to, to some degree suffer them. I suffer them more than <laughs> more than a little bit, I, I confess. Why not just not think intrusive thoughts? Who who is is this is Satan doing this to us? That certainly explains a lot of uh, to me. <laughs> you know, I like I like to think of uh, uh well I like to have a, a robust theology that incorporates the the brokenness of the mind and uh certainly the devil's condemnation. I think there's lots of aspects to it. Um I think for me, uh how do I say this? Uh my brain provides experiences that I do not get to choose among which are intrusive thoughts. And um, I, you know, there's just the brain is, is creates in its fallenness, creates images, creates um, thoughts, creates possibilities that that we don't sit there and get to choose, but are there present anyway. It's like a movie screen, you just sometimes you do not get to choose the movie, the movie on the screen of your brain. Uh, how you relate to it can become something you change. And I would say now intrusive thoughts make up a minimal portion of my daily lived experience but four years ago they made up the bulk of it so it's not that our relationship to them does can manage them or, or actually uh decrease them but where they come from where, what the brain's doing and it's uh, the brain and its fallenness the brain and its and its propensity for affliction and disease i who knows you know who knows yeah i i well i guess Part of the problem is it depends upon the person, right? I mean, some intrusive thoughts could be actual memories of uh, a time in the past where one acted cowardly or shamefully and and it just keeps coming back. Other times it could be sort of an, an, an obsessive, I, I, I've lost, I, I've lost something and, I, and I've, I've got to find it. Oh, there it is. But five minutes later, you worry you've lost something, you know, over and over that that kind of compulsion, so that I, intrusive thoughts can cover a lot of ground, right? Yeah, they're a deep, they're a mystery. I think they're most people experience them. Um, the problem with people with OCD is they cannot get over them. That it's 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 my you, they sort of by trying to get rid of them, you actually grab them and pull them close. You you develop an actually closer bond to them by trying to get rid of them, and I think it kind of dr- go ahead. Sorry. Well, and 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 the OCD person knows this is wrong, knows, so sort of knows, uh, I know that my keys are, are there in my purse or in my pocket, but I have to check anyway. Sure. It is, is, I mean, is OCD accompanied by, I know I'm doing the wrong thing, but I can't help it. Yeah, there's, I say it's, it's, it's as simultaneously knowing that you're fine and not knowing that you're fine. And I think what happens, at least with me, is a gradual learning of distinguishing the voice of of OCD from my voice. It's not it's not like schizophrenia. I, I don't I don't think I'm I'm a different person. I I can understand, but the brain can be so compelling in in its uh, swagger about what is true. And and if you have OCD, you I just say it's it's living with pain and it's living with a bully no one can see and that bully is telling you that things are wrong when nothing's wrong and learning how to walk away or walk through that siren going off is is the trick of for me the trick of recovery or at least the the path of recovery is to call it on its bluff and walk past it but that takes time takes a lot of time to distinguish ocd from from me you know yeah Uh, yeah 
You know, well, the, the book is very personal, very confessional. Uh, specifically, how did you try to deal with your intrusive thoughts in the past? What, what, what were the wrong paths that you took? Sure. Um, you know, for me, the intrusive thoughts, uh, for some reason, bloomed in my in my late 20s, I think, uh, when career and it, it just seemed like for some reason, the, the worst aspects of OCD came came into full bloom then. And I intrusive thoughts being among them, I my compulsion was hyper rumination, which I would just say just a sort of relentless carousel of of checking, uh, defending myself in my head, trying to know for sure and figure things out in my head. So I just picture it as a, a relentless chewing and ruminating on things to make sure they weren't true, to make sure that um, that thought didn't mean anything, to to uh, sit there and create a, a sense of comfort out of out of okay, let me figure this out, let me check this, let me let me let me ruminate on this more. Or let me let me try to somehow to swat out these thoughts and and replace them with good thoughts. So the idea of well, let me, I'm going to replace every bad thought with a good thought is also a compulsion because you're taking responsibility for something that ultimately you sort of in faith just need to walk past. But learning how to do that instead is well for me. It's been a half decade to do that instead of hyper ruminating. But uh, um, yeah, I was stuck in my head. I was it was. Uh, relentless rumination, I would call it. Uh, that was how I dealt with it. And you thought that that would get you out. If I think harder, if I, if I search, I can find, I can find the right, what, the right ideas, the right, the right conclusions, and that, that, will, that will stop it. Yeah, I, said, I think I said in the book somewhere, I'll, I'll think myself into a place where, where no bad thought can get me, and, and I'll sort of I'll, I'll sit there and I'll figure this out. I'll, I'll ruminate on it until I've arrived at, at what's actually true. And, and, and not that there's not parts of that that we do that are fine, you know, sitting there figuring things out, hatching things out. It's when it's just like anything that's, you know, like food or sex or whatever, like it's good in that God made it and within the paradigms that he's given us for it, it's great. It's just when it's used as a salvation device. Or, a, or an ultimate idol to to make things okay, that it can become deeply problematic, and that's what it had become for me. I only had thinking as a way out. Thinking more was the only way out. It, it seemed um, so. That's how it got bad. <laughs> so what what brought about the change? What 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 began your your turn away from that form of intrusive? management and into into another one you know it's i would say and this is where i'm like man i hope this i don't know if this is true for other people or am i speaking out of turn um learning that there's a difference between there was a moment when i understood that there was a difference between what i was experiencing the the alarm bells of ocd the intrusive thoughts that accompany it and what i was there's a difference between that and what I was doing. I did not. It took me 30 years to realize that rumination was a compulsion. I thought everyone was doing it. I thought it was part of the brain working. I didn't realize that that was my contribution to to the disorder. That was my compulsion. So for what what you thought 
was a solution was actually right. part of the problem. And I didn't know that was part of the disorder. I thought, well, this is how you get out of it. This is how you make it better. And they said, no, no, that's part of the disorder. And what happens with everybody, I don't, with me, I think generally across the board with OCD, is when you can identify your compulsions, you can try to stop them. But when you try to stop them, your brain gets very, 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 very upset. It, 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 your symptoms get worse because it's like it's like a bad breakup or it's like a, it's like you know when you give up something for for a good cause you, your body reacts your brain reacts and so learning how to hold your ground with it and to trust in something else and so for me that became um, I trusted a lot in in Jesus as I understood that I could trust him which was as he revealed himself in scripture um, it's just it's hard it's it you know people said it doesn't read like a psychological jargony book it reads like a mystical experience because i would say that christ revealed himself to me as trustworthy through scripture in such a way that i could paint yeah yeah. john john just if you hold that thought for a moment i want to i want to get to that but but first let me let me let me stick with this uh the, the rumination because one element of the rumination that you say is there's an assumption to it, and that is what you call dependence on self. You know, I can do this in my own head. I can figure out. I can get 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 myself out of this. And you say that this is a terribly destructive assumption. And and when I was reading those pages, I, I was thinking that, but but you know, our whole culture today, it, it self-reliance, do your own thing right? Be independent. It's so prized, right, in our, in our liberal, secular world. Uh, did you find that your, your rumination in, in some ways was reinforced by the, the cultural messages that we get? I think for my, and I think for my generation, I'm 34, I guess, broadly a millennial, there's just a lot of trust that we were given to put into thoughts and feelings and we're isolated we're an isolated bunch of folks um this the sense of bodily presence with others is is not an important one but thoughts and feelings have been have been certainly idolized and so if if thoughts and feelings are what you trust most they're what you think are the sort of tablet of reality that you're going to uh learn from or lean from that you're in a very precarious position for actually recovering because the things you trust most are the problem or at least not the solution. So yeah, certainly I, I mean, thoughts, I, they're what I, I was, a, if you have OCD, you're an isolated person. I think generally there's a sense that you have a, just a, a something between you and the world and it's, it's the OCD. Um, you're, you're sort of trapped there with thoughts, and thoughts seem to be the best and worst thing about you. When they're great, they're great. You have creativity, imagination, wonderful insights, and when they're bad, they're they're a dungeon. You can't get out. And I, and I, yeah, unique. I think for sure, something in in my generation's moment is uniquely vulnerable to to the worst of that, um, for sure. You entered a psychiatric ward in 2018. Is that where you began the encounter? with the Lord? Yeah. Yeah. It got to a place I couldn't function, couldn't leave the house. And so, and, and the intrusive thoughts were such a mystery to me. I just needed some expert to sort of tell me what was real, what was I experiencing. Um, yeah, the psych ward was, was my lowest, 
my lowest point, but also I just, um, I, you know, I, there was a revelation. I mean, not through any extraordinary means. I had a, I had a Bible with me, a little pocket Bible that let me keep. I had a nurse that kept me company. I had a wife that visited me. But, but those were a means of grace, particularly the scriptures. And I just, I just felt like Christ revealed himself as trustworthy in that moment in a way that my thoughts and feelings were not and that I was going to have to to trust on something outside of thoughts and feelings if I was going to make it, which is weird because that almost sounds like a thought itself. But I learned that trust yeah. is some is a different matter of the heart than than what I'm experiencing in my mind. Not that there's not a relationship, but there there's a there's a certain distinction that I that I learned and at there uniquely for sure. You you actually write of quote the subversive power of the gospel. Uh. In the course of things, did it subvert something in you, something bad in you? How, how did that work? If so, I I I, I call it the, the subversive power of the gospel to be the overturning word and what it did. You know, I I talk about the the compulsions as being sort of a way of thinking, or, or at least for me, about pride, about that um, so the thing in us that says we get to, we can take things back and make things right. And for me, that was thinking. If I thought I could thought more, I could take things back, make things right, and find a way out. And to learn that that's not true, and that we're actually we're actually as as it's our hearing, it's the hearing of promises in the gospel of who Jesus is and what He's done that actually locates us more firmly in reality. That that's a that's a cleansing of the heart. That's an overturning of pride. And the problem with pride is it doesn't you don't notice it because it's pride. You don't think to yourself, I'm a prideful guy. You just think this is what life is. And then the overturning word says, actually, you've been depending on yourself in ways you don't even recognize. And here this is to to reveal it. And um, But also it was the beginning of learning that my thoughts were, my thoughts and the OCD were not telling me true things. They were telling me lies. Um, that was you don't if if you've lived with your mind for thirty years you don't all, all the time think that it's lying to you but a lot of my recovery has been learning that my brain is not equipped to tell me the truth about what's what really things really are and um, and I mean, that's an overturning word to hear that your your mind is is not your friend in that way or at least is predisposed to not being your friend in that way. You repeat a few times an interesting fact about Jesus, and you, you want this to be recognized, quote, he kept his scars. Jesus keeps his scars. Why is this important? You know, I, could, I went to a seminary and probably would have written a different paper five years ago about why it's important. Um, there's something that the scars do that are the sign that he has claimed his people, but also that he has rescued his people from pride and lies and that that subversive gospel is a div, kind of divine claim that for me seems to be stored in the hands of the crucified savior and um i for me that's the source of all reality the crucified christ it's it's where i go it's where i locate reality it's also the source of of my release from pride and lies it's where i go to for to confess that I have believed pride and lies and to be cleansed again. But maybe it's just this. I think it just for me, ever you know, if if you have a, a mind that, that feels horrors 
and and sees horrors just because that's what OCD does. That's a suffering and that's a pain. It's OCD's anguish and pain, and and uh, to know that Christ took anguish and pain into him into his body, and that somehow the answer to suffering is his body. Um, uh, I'm a big big fan of the sacraments, big fan of the Lord's table. That somehow in in that in in the crucified body is the answer to suffering, which isn't the same as a thought that was helpful to, not the same as a as an argument or, or even a theological essay, although those point us to it. There's just a mystery in those hands that I never got over and, and have still been a source of strength to me. That he yeah. that he bears that kind of pain with us for us. Yeah. Now now we're we're talking very seriously here, but one of the doctors who examined you in the hospital had a suggestion that stuck with you, and that is try to have a sense of humor about yourself. H- how did that advice strike you at that moment? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. It was, I, I think I called it in the book a word of amnesty. It was to be told, um, try not to take yourself so seriously. Try not to take your thoughts so seriously. You were here because you took them so seriously. You need to laugh them off and move forward. I think there was was a sense in which it was um, a taunt, because I was like, I I perceived it as a taunt at the time, which was, how am I supposed to do that? Where does this sense of humor come from? But at the time, it was it was him trying to say, "Look, buddy, you got OCD. You, you, you followed your compulsions here. That's how you got here. And uh, why don't you try to laugh a bit more and, and move on through this this life?" And for me, that was about as good as you were going to get from from someone who in the secular world to say, you know, make a friend, laugh some more, don't take it so seriously, and try to do your best. But at the time, I thought I was something was worse was going on with me. So to hear that it was just OCD and I needed to laugh more, it felt like amnesty. It felt like the verdict falling off from me that I was doomed forever and would never leave the psych ward. It was it was a joyous thing too. I don't, it's hard to explain how things can be, all those things at once. You 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 really love the book of Psalms. What what's uh what's so great about those things? Huh? Man. Permission, I call it permission to grieve. And there's Psalms where, you know, I found that beneath, because my mind was so foggy from the OCD, I didn't have a lot of access to my actual life, the the actual hurts and pains that made up my life. And so reading the Psalms was like being led to me and to say, you know, it's time to grieve, buddy. The Lord wants, wants us to offer up through his spirit our losses and our pains. And I needed coaching. I was like, what does that look like? Well, look at these wild prayers called the Psalms that we often just overlook. I mean, if there was a man being completely honest before the Lord and unafraid of complete vulnerability, it's the psalmist, you know. And uh, it was permission to see that as worship as well. Because when those big feelings came out, when the OCD fog was clearing, I had big big feelings, big, big grief, to, big griefs to grieve, big feelings to feel. And I needed, I needed to be led there by the Psalms. And yeah, for sure. That was permission to grieve, I would call it. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that the, the intrusive thoughts do, you, you laid this out, is that they kind of humiliate you. 
know, they weaken you because you, you, as you put it, you, you feel bullied and you, you can't really, you can't really fight. Does this give them, I mean, this gives them greater, this adds to their power. It, it makes them keep coming back, right? It's like, you know, you know, you know, you fight back against a bully, he, he may stop. If you don't, he's never going to stop. Yeah, there's, um, it's a unique relationship to, to how to deal with, to deal with it, the humiliation and the shame of, I mean, it's like one of those things like someone who loves you said, well, what are you worried about? And you're like, well, I can't tell you. Or like, why? Because it's an intrusive thought and to, to speak it would be to like speak the unspeakable, which is what drives it to appear more in your life. But the, the hold of shame, the loss of honor, I mean, I did lose my career when I went to the psych ward, you know, and I had to, you know, I was going to be an Anglican priest, I was going to do all these things. And it's not that they told me no after that, but they, they had a, a look in their eyes about who are you, you know, the, the committee wanted to know things. And I said, look, I have intrusive thoughts and I have OCD. And they had a look on their face that was shame inducing because they were freaked out by you. They didn't understand the disorder and and my path had to, my career path did change significantly. Um, and, and being honest about what was going on changed the trajectory of my life. And, and part of it was dealing with people don't look at you the same when you, when you're honest about your, about your mental health stuff. Um, and then that compounds the, the intrusive thoughts because then the, the intrusive thoughts just say, Hey, we see an opening here. We're going for you again. Learning to see and learn the ways that Christ can clothe shame by hearing his word and walk us through the worst of the fear. I, I said, the way out of OCD is you're trapped in a haunted house and you, you learn to let Christ take you by the hand and walk you out of it. You, you learn to walk through it. You just, you say, I'm headed somewhere else. This ain't it. And um, I, the victory is walking. It's just that long walk with yourself in your broken mind. You learn how to learn. You learn how to walk with Christ through every day, and that becomes the victory. It's just not, <laughs> it just doesn't sound like a blockbuster victory, you know, because the more you argue with the thoughts, the more they come back. So you learn, you learn how to walk, keep walking. Not, you don't even really pay them attention. You, you learn how to just keep walking like they're not real because they're not. That's what you learn. If they were real, you, you should talk to them. Because they're not, you get to walk through them. You actually say sin is a lie. And maybe the worst lie is, quote, my life is mine. And, 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 the, and, the, and, the, and the idea, and this is your phrase, life as I would have it. Now, it, isn't this the great temptation of, of contemporary society? Yeah, though, there's um, that everything is ordered around me. I'm somehow at the center of all things. And and I think it's a blindness you can't see. So I, there's a mercy there for, I think, for our cultural moment. Just the mercy of, like, how does one diagnose blindness? Well, through revelation, which is Christ's job, through his gospel. And so I'm just like, but yeah, I mean, the learning that life's not about you. It's about the Lord and, and being the guest and servant of his table. His mercies are spread for us. Like, that's was such a relief, but how do you walk out of blindness? You know, OCD is a factory for managing and keeping the self safe. It's like, well, if I do this, I'll be okay, and I'm going to arrange things so that I'm okay. It's always about 
how am I going to be okay? And learning a different way to be okay where you depend on something outside yourself. How does one do that except by revelation, you know, except by, except by the Lord's mercies being revealed? I, I, have a, I have maybe an understanding of my generation, but maybe a deep compassion. Because the whole point of pride is you ain't seeing nothing because pride doesn't want you to look at it. It wants, it wants you to, it, pride is, it wants you to feel like that the, the world's job is to be about you. And you don't even recognize it as that. You you know that's and I think that's what's hard. <laughs> Pride's hard. <laughs> you you uh, you swim every day. You love swimming. It's important to you. Is physical exercise or just physical activity of some kind ritualized very important here or helpful? Maybe I should say helpful here. Yeah, I yeah. You know I I uh, absolutely I think. I kind of developed this sense of shepherding my body and my mind um, to say, you know, things are better when I'm swimming than, than when I'm not. And things are happening that are restorative in my brain when I'm swimming or active or around people. But man, is it hard to get up and get to the pool, you know, and, and how does one do that? How does um, I, the, the things that heal anybody activity, people, presence, community are the things that people with mental illness need. But that threshold to get back into the things that restore life is so, it's just a dark black wall and people need company, you know, and that, and I had company and I, and I grieve those who, who don't. I had a wife who loved me. I had friends who, who wanted to go the why with me and kept me on task that we would go I, you know, there's commitments they made to me that became commitments I made to them. And all of a sudden I found myself swimming every day and feeling better. Um, but how I got there sometimes is just as much of, as much of a mystery as getting out of, of other things. It's, it just seemed like a miracle. I was there some days, but there I was swimming and, um, and I'm still swimming still. It's easier now. I love it now. But at the time it felt like, it felt like the Lazarus being called out from the dead. You know, it's just like, how <laughs> How does one go from death to life? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's more in in the book, uh, including some discussion of a, a mentor who turned out to be a rather abusive figure in your life. Uh, I'll let I'll let readers uh, go into that for now. The book is A Quiet Mind to Suffer With, Mental Illness, Trauma, and the Death of Christ. John Andrew Bryant, thank you for joining us. A pleasure to be here. A pleasure and an honor. Thank you.